Hi, my name is John Lorcher. Well, my first real job was um, at a county pool in East Wenatchee. And I was able to, to do something that I love to do, which was swimming. Um, it was my passion. It was a sport that I did in high school. Uh, I did it year round. Uh, I was good at it and I felt comfortable there. We dove with killer whales in Puget Sound as they went through. Uh, that was pretty exciting. My whole goal was to, to take over that pool and be the manager and, and that was going to be my career. The thing that derailed my dream uh, happened on, on a Friday after, or excuse me, a Friday afternoon in February when I had been part, had a party with my friends. We got up the next morning, we were having a snowball fight and the next thing I knew, I was laying on the couch in the house and didn't remember walking in the door. Uh, and they'd called my parents, and my parents were out, out front coming in, and they were on their way to bring me to the emergency room because I'd had a seizure. Uh, they did an EEG on my head, and at that point, he told me that, that uh, I couldn't participate in any aquatic sports in Congress. I asked him a couple questions like, you know, what do you mean by not participate at all? Because I wasn't understanding what he meant. And he basically said that I was not in a position to ever be in a pool again for the rest of my life. I remember running out of his office and left my mom in the waiting room and I ran down the stairs, around the fourth floor, and I ran all the way down the stairs and, and out to the car because I, I couldn't face my mom knowing that this was going to happen. Uh, it was the one thing that, that I had done that made my mom and dad proud and it was gone. I automatically assumed that I had done something, something wrong that had caused my epilepsy. Our darkest period was when I had to go back to the pool and clean out my locker and, and turn in my resignation, I basically told God that if, if he didn't have a plan that, that would involve something other than the seizures, then, then I didn't want a plan. That's hard, huh? That's um, it's very weighty, very heavy. Um, and I think there's a level at which we can all relate to the kinds of feelings uh, that are generated when it feels like our dreams have been taken from us, when they've been hijacked that way. And it's in part because out of all of creation, God gave to human beings something he didn't give anyone else um, and any other creatures, and that's this ability to dream. And I don't just mean like neurologically while we sleep. I mean the ability to imagine a future, um, a particular future, and to uh, marshal all of our energies and our activities and our discipline towards that and to actually be able to create this future that we've imagined that way. And that's an incredible gift, the ability to do that. But at the same time, that great gift, it, it comes with a downside. And the downside of that gift is the disappointment that happens when the reality that we're experiencing is very different from the future that we'd imagined uh, in our mind that way. 
And that's the feeling that we have when our dreams get hijacked and taken from us. Uh, sometimes, sometimes those dreams get hijacked you know, by a specific person who inserts themselves into our place in the dream. Uh, someone else is fitting into my dream where I belong. So maybe the person that I was convinced that I was going to marry has suddenly fallen in love with somebody else and my dream is gone. Or maybe that promotion or that new job that I totally deserved was actually handed and given to somebody else and my dream dies a death at that point as well. And sometimes our dreams are hijacked by people, by people, other times just by circumstances over which we have no control, a, a medical situation that, that emerges out of nowhere like we saw in the video. Just this uh, last week, there's the story of uh, uh, the kid out of Baylor who was getting ready to be drafted into the NBA to play basketball. He was a consensus first-round pick, pick, and in the, in, the, uh, in the physical examination right leading up to the draft, they discovered a medical condition. He'll never, he's never going to play basketball ever again. In, in the short of one brief sentence, and in the moment it takes him just a heartbeat to deliver the news, the doctors told him, your dream has died. It's been taken from you. You'll never play organized ball again. And sometimes there's just no one specific to blame. There's no specific thing to blame. Uh, it's just that the death of our dream feels like this random accident and this circumstance and this coincidence that makes no sense. And we could go on and on and on with examples all morning long. But what holds all of those examples together is this sense that there's this specific future with some very precise features that I have in mind that I believe are a dream that God has placed in my heart. And now this reality, for whatever reason that I'm experiencing, uh, that vision, that plan, that dream has gotten hijacked. It's been taken away from us without our consent, and now we feel like we're sentenced to live an existence for the rest of our lives that is just less, less than what was intended, less than what was promised, less fulfilling, less perfect than the dream that we had in mind. Have you ever been there? Have you had that sense of something being taken from you that way? That's a difficult place to be. When I was in college, one of my friends' name was uh, Rod. He was a good friend. He was a great guy. He was fun. He was fun-loving. He was energetic. He was athletic. Uh, he had great character. He just, everyone loved being around him. And uh, he also had this incredible sister named Rochelle. <laughs> and he had a relationship with his, with his sister that was, honestly, it's the closest brother-sister relationship I've ever seen, a friendship that ran incredibly, incredibly deep. Uh, deep. And so when I, when I proposed to Rochelle, we both had this picture in our mind of what our life was going to look like, right? About how it is that we'd um, come together and be a family and how we would raise our family alongside of Rod's family and how our kids would grow up with his kids and they'd be very close and it would all be wonderful. It was a great picture. It was a compelling dream that we shared. And, and the day after we became engaged, Rochelle and I received a phone call that Rod had been in an accident, a motorcycle accident, and that he had been killed. And it was in that moment that um, Rochelle's world was instantly changed and, and the world of her family was dramatically changed and, and mine was as well. Because on the day that he died, there were just literally dozens of dreams that were instantly hijacked and set aside. Some of them very deep, some of them very personal. And when a dream dies, as we know, there is pain, right? And there's disillusionment and there's confusion and, and there's all manner of emotion. And it's in the moment when these dreams are first hijacked that we realize how our responses reveal a tremendous amount about us, about who we are, about who we really trust, right, and about what it is that we really believe. Those are powerful moments. And today, we're going to look at a few guys in the Bible 
who experienced the hijacking of their dreams and about the different ways that they responded to those hijackings and the way that their different responses made literally all the difference in the world. I want to tell you this morning uh, about a story of the sons of Jacob. Jacob is also named Israel. He got to go by two names, uh, so don't let that confuse you. Uh, But uh, Jacob had a blended family. He had uh, 10 sons from one wife, two sons from another. And his family was very, very successful and had been for generations back. Great-grandpa Abraham was the founder of the nation. He was the one that specifically God had called out to bless and to multiply and to sustain. Uh, Grandpa Isaac carried on the family business really well, continued to be very successful and to expand the influence of the family. And by the time dad, Jacob, Israel, uh, had his family, their wealth was extensive and their influence was widespread. They had flocks and they had resources and they had servants. They, they had everything that a family could be looking for in terms of material resource. And every one of his sons stood to inherit everything that was needed for a bright and promise, promising and a successful career. That's the way it stood. And everybody knew how it would, would work because the culture of the day was ironclad. That the number one son, the oldest son, would receive like a double share of the inheritance. That he would be the favored one, and he would be the one in line to take on the family business and to lead the family for generations to come. That's just how it worked, and everybody knew it. The rest of the sons would take on whatever supporting role was theirs to give, because the older you were in the family, the better the position that you got. Each son understood his role in the pecking order, and knew exactly how his uh, future was scheduled to play out. And so each of the sons, at whatever point in the age hierarchy that they dwelt, began to build and to construct the dreams for their life and the future that they would have and the success that they would breed based on where they fell. But then came Joseph, second to the youngest, down at the end, the younger brother, and he came along, and he hijacked all of their dreams. Here's how the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, describes it. Now Israel, dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Here he is, the youngest should be the least, and the father gives him the most amount of favor. And it's not just like the robe was really cool and he got a better Christmas gift than everybody else. This robe had significance. It was a symbol. It was the kind of robe that a father gave typically to the eldest son to say, you are now the one in charge. I'm conferring my authority upon you. The bearer of this, the bearer and the wearer of this ornate robe is the one who gets to run the business in my absence, to make the decisions, to be in charge and to lead. And so it was with Jaws dropped that the brothers saw that this particular honor and all of the authority and the power and the influence that were associated with it were given to Joseph. And they became jealous, jealous of his relationship with their dad, jealous of this new role in his authority, and jealous of his future. Because in addition to the robe, Joseph was receiving some other gifts as well. God started sending some dreams to Joseph. Joseph, he relayed these dreams, uh, and we read about it, we continue to read about it in Genesis 37, but he, he actually told these dreams to his family, his brothers and his parents when he had them. In one of them, 
All the brothers are kind of out in the fields with all the grains that they've collected and bound together into these sheaves. And, and in the dream, the sheaves of all the other brothers bowed down and worshipped the sheaves that belonged to Joseph. Now, I'm no psychologist, okay? I have no formal training, but I think I can figure that one out. I think I know what's going on there. This is, this is Joseph dreaming that his brothers will bow down to him given his new stature. He had another dream which was really like it, in which he said, even the moon and the sun and all the stars bowed down and worshipped me. Can you imagine your little brother coming and telling you that's his dream? And you probably wouldn't even have to wonder where that's all coming from, right? Because at night you see him proud of his robe, folded up, nice and, nice and soft, to set it down right down the top of his pillow, just to lay his head down next to this robe that symbolizes all this power and authority and influence and favor that he's been given, what else would he dream of, right? And it, it kind of ticked the brothers off. They were not fond of this. They were not happy. He told the brothers, told his dad, and uh, we're told in verse 11 of this chapter that his brothers, after he told them about the dreams, were very jealous of him, and his father kept the matter in mind. You see, the sons of Jacob, the other sons, the older sons of Jacob, they had their dreams and they had their future all mapped out. They knew where it was going to fall. The dream was in their heart. And that dream was hijacked by what they saw as the favoritism of their father and by the arrogance of their younger brother. And the problem with jealousy is this. It never stops there. Unchecked jealousy goes to some ugly places. And when we indulge our jealous instincts, we open the door to an even more destructive emotion, and that's bitterness. See, if jealousy is, is the match that gets the fire going, uh, then bitterness is the wildfire that inevitably results when jealousy goes unchecked. And when bitterness gets a foothold, it becomes a root that is almost impossible to destroy. So over in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews said this. He said, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. It's an interesting description of bitterness, that it's a bitter root. We, uh, we have, uh, or we used to have, in my yard out on the island by the corner, a really beautiful aspen tree. It was there when we moved in, and it was gorgeous. And uh, as aspen trees will, um, it started to fail health-wise. And I've learned the hard way that when an aspen tree is dying, it just doesn't go quietly into the good night. The moment it starts getting sick, it starts sending out these roots as far out as it can go and then starts shooting up these little sprouts that are trying to be new aspen trees. And if it's a really sick aspen tree, it sends out so many shoots out that it tries to grow a whole new aspen forest just to keep the, the organism alive. And I, I mean, I'm no green thumb. I, I kill more than I keep alive when it comes to plants and stuff. And I'm not one of those guys that enjoy lawn work, but I lawn, yard work and stuff, but I try. And so I would mow my lawn... And it would look good for about 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes, these new sprouts of new aspen keep coming up everywhere. And after about an hour and a half, it looks like nobody's lived there for four years because it's just a mess out there. I tried to convince my wife that an aspen forest would be great landscaping. That got shot down. So now, here's where we stand. We no longer have the aspen tree. It's been taken out and carted away. The root's been pulled out and ground down and done the best we can. The problem, the tree, is... You know what remains? These sprouts that, just come, that keep coming up, they're worse than the original problem. And they're there because, because there are these roots that are underground where you can't get to them, and they will not relent. 
Bitterness is like that in us. Something happens. Someone steps in. Our dream gets hijacked. And on the surface, we do the best that we can to to deal with it. We kind of mow the lawn of our life to make it look nice and pretty and well-tended. But if we're not careful, down underneath the surface where it really matters, where real damage can get done, the roots of that bitterness are growing. All the while waiting for the chance to spring up and pop up at the least convenient times and do as much damage as possible so that the new situation is worse than the original. See, Joseph's brothers crossed the line from jealousy to bitterness um, when they became so upset that they actually began plotting his death. Here's how that happened. So um, the story has kind of forwarded just a little bit. Um, the, the sons who are old enough to go out and tend the flocks kind of all over the place have gone out, and they're, so they've gone away from home, they're out into the land, and they're tending the flocks. Dad decides, I wonder how they're doing. And so you know who he sends to check up on them? The favored little brother. And every older brother just loves to be checked up on by the favored younger brother, right? That's going to be real popular for sure. So dad sends them out. Joseph goes off, finds his brothers, and, uh, and is getting ready to check up on them, probably wearing the coat, the, the robe, probably with his little clipboard, his little tattletale clipboard that he's going to run back to dad with. He's ready to go. And they see him coming from a distance. And they're like, oh, we're so glad. We really miss our wonderful little brother. No, not at all. This was actually their response. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. And throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Can you, maybe bitterness has taken a little bit of a root here. Can you see that? It's, it's really advanced. And so they, they start to actually live out their plan. When he gets there, they accost him, and they take the robe off of him, and they throw him in this well. There's no water. It's kind of out in the arid, dry desert area. So there's a well that's dry, and they throw him in there, and they're going to kill him until one of the older brothers says, look, that might not be a good idea. And, I, and so, so he said, look, we can't actually kill him. Let's just put him in the well and leave him there in the desert. Like, because then we won't be as guilty if we just leave him there to die in the heat, right? And it, the scripture tells us that his plan was he was going to go back later and, and uh, rescue him when he got a chance. And then the Bible says something really funny as it tells this story. So they, they grab him, they take the robe off him, they throw him down in the well, and, said, and then they sat down to eat. <laughs> oh, and how was your day, right? <laughs> they sit down to eat a meal. And it's while they're eating this meal that they see a caravan in the distance that comes by, and, uh, and they're traders on their way to Egypt, and it strikes their mind. Hey, wait a minute. We can get rid of Joseph, pick up a little bit of spare cash, and we don't have to actually kill him. And so they drag him out of the pit, and they sell him to the slave traders who then take him off to Egypt. Then they take the robe, the robe of honor, they smear uh, goat's blood all over it, take it back to dad and say, something horrible must have happened your favored son is dead. Yeah, I'd say they crossed the line a little bit, right? Their jealousy, their bitterness got out of control because that's what happens. Bitterness takes us to places that we, we, that we would never have dreamt that we were capable of. And so it's because of that reality over in the New Testament that when James is writing his letter, he says this. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. 
I mean, he could have been talking right to Joseph's brothers there about the way that their bitterness and their jealousy was causing them to do some horrible, horrible things. Joseph's brothers lived that out, and their jealousy became bitterness, and their bitterness produced something far, far worse than anything they ever thought was imaginable. Bitterness is not just something that we can let sit and, and hope that it ends up okay. Elsewhere, again, in the New Testament here, Paul writes, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Instead, get rid of bitterness. What are we called to do? Get rid of bitterness. Get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. How do you do that? By being kind and compassionate to one another and forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Why do you think Paul found it so important to get rid of the bitterness and the rage and the malice and the hatred? Why is it such a big deal? Because bitterness produces problems and evils in us that are far worse than even the original injustices that seem to be their cause. Um, and I think at this point, I just want to pause and, and give you a moment to reflect and say, what about you? What are those places? Where, where are the places that maybe someone has hijacked your dream from you? Maybe you had a sense of what God had placed in your heart to accomplish, and then because of the actions of somebody else, intentionally or otherwise, it's no longer possible. I just want to ask, is it possible that somewhere between the nicely mown lawn of your very well-put-together life, is it possible that roots of bitterness lurk beneath? If they do, Paul says, get rid of it. Don't let it sit. Don't let it fester. Don't let it get worse. See, bitterness is what happens when we, when we lose track of a few key truths. And the first one is this, that God is in control of every circumstance. A lot of times when, when our dreams are hijacked and taken from, a, from us, it, it feels like that person did it to me. That person caused this situation. That person created this loss. But you know what? Scripture is real clear. God's in control of everything. D did God allow this to happen or didn't he? And if God is ultimately in control of every circumstance that comes into our lives, then who I'm really angry at is God when I hold on to bitterness. I usually don't realize it, but deep down I'm mad at God for what he has allowed, for what he has done, or for maybe for what he has not done. See, at the end of the day, bitterness is really not anger at another person. It's a sustained, ongoing, unrelenting anger at God for what it is that he has allowed. And that's not a great place to be. Here's something else that we know is true, but we forget about, and it leads to bitterness, and it's this. God is good. See, sometimes my experience doesn't say God is good. Sometimes I'm in the middle of something going on, and it doesn't feel like God is good. It feels like God is inattentive. It feels like maybe God doesn't care, or like maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. That's what it feels like, but at the heart of our faith is a God who is good, and we need to cling to that truth tenaciously and with great faith. If you're bitter at someone or for what they've done to you this morning, you probably have decided, whether you recognize it or not, that God didn't handle this correctly and that maybe, not, maybe God's not good after all. And you're holding him accountable to that by clinging to your bitterness. See, additionally is this, bitterness harms people. And that's some of the, some of the reason we sometimes hang on to bitterness is we go, yeah, I want to harm that person. I want to harm. They've harmed me. I'm going to harm them back. But here's the deal. Bitterness is, a, bitterness is a fairly crude weapon, and it's one that produces a lot of collateral damage. 
we feel like I cling to my bitterness over what this particular person has done and that, and that the damage I'm going to un, unleash on them is very focused and it's, it's got like a laser focus on them, but you know what? It doesn't. Bitterness damages everything in its path. It infects every relationship. When I'm bitter with a person for what they've done with me over here, I feel like I'm really only doing them harm, but, um, but the, my own bitterness is going to affect my every relationship. It's going to carry over into my relationship with my coworkers. I'm going to become a bitter person who, re, who uh, communicates differently with my wife and with my family, and I will infect every relationship I'm in with the bitterness which is building up inside of me. Bitterness infects every relationship. It lashes out at the most vulnerable targets and the most available targets. See, Joseph's brothers, they had a lot of targets to choose from. God allowed this to happen. They could have been mad at him, but frankly, I think they kind of feared uh, that position, and wisely so. They also had every right to be really upset with their dad who was showing an unfair favoritism with their younger brother, but they didn't take that up with him either. Why? Because they needed him. They needed his business. They needed his support. They needed everything that went along with being part of that family. So instead of dealing with maybe some of the people who really could have done something about it, they just took it out on the nearest available, most vulnerable target, and that was Joseph. And here's something for us to remember. Every now and again, we find ourselves on the receiving end of somebody else's bitterness, right? I'm not now talking about the bitterness that I feel and I'm unleashing on others. I'm talking about sometimes we're on the receiving end of somebody, other, somebody else's anger or bitterness. And often we need to realize that the, that the venom that people vent on us is not really about us. Sometimes you and I are just the convenient targets. And if we can identify that, if we can remember this principle, we're going to realize that we don't have to respond in the same spirit, right? Our natural instinct when someone is angry and bitter and hurtful towards us is to push back in the same spirit and to overpower their bitterness with maybe just a little bit of bitterness and force of our own. We find that when we do that, we just perpetuate the cycle of anger and wrath and hatred. But rather than do that, rather than perpetuate that cycle, we can break the cycle simply by considering this possibility. Maybe they're not mad at me. Maybe they're just mad. I don't know. I, I tend to take it as a personal insult when someone cuts me off on the road a little too closely. Like, they meant, they see that guy in the blue Kia? We're going to go get him. And we're going to pull over right in front of him really close. <laughs> Sometimes they just had a bad day. Maybe they're just an unskilled driver. <laughs> Maybe they weren't mad at me. Maybe they were mad at the Toyota on the other side of me. I don't know, but, but I just assume it's about me, and then I lash out. What if we took a moment to say, maybe it's not me. Maybe I'm not the most appropriate target. Maybe I'm just the nearest available target. And you know what that en enables us to do? It allows us to step out of that cycle. It allows us to, um, to respond to their bitterness with love and grace. And quite possibly, if we will respond to the bitterness and anger that gets directed at us with some love and some grace and some mercy, we can not just unleash our own selves from the cycle, but we can maybe free them as well to pray for them and to return their evil for good. In the New Testament, Paul wrote this. He said, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So instead of repaying them, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
In doing this, he'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome the evil with good. What a concept that we could do that. That we could be used by God to, to overcome someone else's evil or hatred or anger, to overcome it with our good, kind, loving response of feeding for them, caring for them, praying for the best for them. And in so doing, preventing a bitter, a bitter root of our own from springing up and quite possibly setting them free from theirs as well. The most natural response to a hijacked dream uh, is a jealousy that descends very rapidly into bitterness. And that is a very terribly destructive response. But there is another option, and there is another way. And that is to cling to those core tenets of our faith, that God is good, that God is in control, and that God does have a plan that he will reveal in his time. Not our time, but in his time. We reject bitterness by choosing to trust that God has a big picture plan and that his plan is good, even if it doesn't look so good from where I am right here, right now, in the middle of some of my own disappointment. Earlier, uh, earlier we, we saw part of John uh, Loringer's testimony. I want you to uh, take a look here at, this, at these closing thoughts on his story. God that if, if he didn't have a plan that that would involve something other than the seizures then then I didn't want a plan uh, but God met me where he needed to meet me and uh, that's the miraculous thing about the whole story was that uh, the things that I have now the marriage that I have now the kids that I have now would never have happened just the life that I have now my career in medicine wouldn't be there if I hadn't started having the seizures. My dream was taken away, uh, and but God restored me. He gave me a new dream. He filled in that gap and gave me a new destination. I love that. I mean, in that moment, I'm encouraged. God restored me. God gave me a new dream. Um, I'll just say that for me personally, um, and, and probably representative of, of many of us here, I'm on several levels midway through, uh, through that process of maybe hitting some difficulty, having a dream hijacked, dealing with the bitterness along the way, and then at some point I know I'm going to be in that spot where I can look back and say, oh, now I see God's plan. Now I see God's goodness unveiled as I look back. But I got, I got several of those journeys where I'm not all the way there yet. I'm struggling and trying to fight faithfully somewhere in between as I get to a place where I can look back and say, but God has restored me and given me a new dream. Do you, do you know why John's story is compelling to me? It's so encouraging. We need to hear stories all the time of people who, by God's grace and through his power, have reached the place where the goodness of God's plan has been unveiled and revealed. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're at a place where life provides you an opportunity right where you sit here to know, look, it's not always been great and it's not always been easy. And there has been some pain and disillusionment along the way and some lost dreams. But as I sit here today, I can look back and say, God is good. And he's placed a new dream in my heart and a new path for me to travel. 
and I see God's goodness even in the difficult times. If that's you and you have a story, anything remotely like that, would you just tell it loudly all the time to everybody that you run across? We need to hear it. We need to be encouraged. And you might not think that your story is particularly dramatic or overwhelming, but let me just say on behalf of those of us who sit here in the middle needing to be encouraged, I don't need huge, massive drama. I just need the reminder at any level that the people around me can attest to God's goodness in their own life. We can become a storytelling congregation whose stories give regular glory to God for his goodness so that those of us who in this moment are struggling to see God's goodness can be encouraged and our ability to cling to that faith can be uh, strengthened as well. When Joseph hijacked his brother's dreams, they didn't see any way in which this could possibly be part of God's plan. And because they couldn't see it, because they couldn't envision it, they allowed their jealousy and their bitterness to conquer them. Go ahead and read Genesis 37 for yourself this week and get all the details. They are plentiful. In fact, through this series, continue reading forward in the book of Genesis and be, maybe even read ahead for the messages that are to come. But as I mentioned, it turns out they didn't actually directly kill Joseph. They, managed, they, they sold him off into slavery instead. They responded to their own broken dreams by breaking and hijacking the dreams of Joseph. The one that they taunted and called dreamer, they took great joy in hijacking his own dreams. And while they responded to a hijacked dream with bitter resentment and jealousy, Joseph's life, the remainder of Joseph's life, shows a different story. It tells a different tale. The remainder of Joseph's life and really the next several weeks of the series are a study in a different way to respond to a hijacked dream, a response that trusts God's goodness a trust that leans into God's character and a response that clings to the idea that God in this has a plan. I want to invite you to keep coming back because this morning we talked quite a bit about how not to respond to a dream that's been hijacked, right? We're going to see in the life of Joseph moving forward that when you move forward in faith and trust from the place of a hijacked dream, God does amazing things things. But for now, I'm going to ask you uh, to close your eyes and to bow your heads and maybe really open your heart to what it is God wants to say and do in you in this moment. Because while you're there and while you're sitting and while you're reflecting, I think I, I'm going to pray in just a moment a prayer, and I'm going to ask God to release some of us from a bitterness that we know has been building. And I think the people that I'm talking to right now um, are, not the, are not the ones who are going, I don't know, are not ones who are saying, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I think I'm actually speaking to some of us in the room who would go, nope, there's no question about it. There are roots of bitterness in my life that trace back to some broken dreams, and, and I've not done a thing about it. And I know that this morning, it's, it's my day to be set free of those roots of bitterness. It's my day to release those into the hands of God. God. It's my day to stop returning evil for evil and to start returning evil with some good. And if that's you, I'm going to pray this morning that God sets you free from the bitterness that maybe you've been battling a long time. And so if that's you, and, and you'd, like me, you'd like me to know that I'm praying for you while I pray, would you just 
Real quick, slip your hand up and down, and, and I will be praying for those whose hands are up. Fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of us. <laughs> Let's pray. God, you see the hands, and more importantly, God, you see the hearts that they represent. And, and God, those of us who raise our hands, we say this morning, God, um, we need the power of your Holy Spirit in our life to do what we have been unable to do in our own strength. So God, on the, in the beginning, we repent this morning and say, God, we, we have allowed this bitterness to happen, and for that we apologize. We ask your forgiveness. And then beyond that, God, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask right now, in this moment, would you break the power of that bitterness in our life? God, would you reverse that cycle of anger and hatred and release us and set us free? God, would you... Um, would you give us the ability to do what we maybe haven't been able to do for years, and that is to say and to mean it, I forgive them. I'm letting go of that. I'm, I'm leaving that to God to deal with as he sees fit, but I have let it go. They owe me nothing on that relational debt. Holy Spirit, would you do a miracle in us, make us new and free and no longer saddled, saddled by the bitterness that has kept us down. And God, would you release us in areas of freedom, and joy, and in strength, and in praise that we may never have known for years and years and years. God, thank you for the freedom that comes with releasing these things into your hands. And God, for all of us, would you open our eyes and open our hearts to the prospect of the new dreams that you're placing in our hearts, the dreams that reflect your goodness and your character and your plan. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. love that. You can have a seat, Scott. Let's stand up together. I don't want uh, God's dream for me to get hindered in any way by my bitterness. Um, and I bet you feel the same way, that God has a dream for each one of us. And sometimes it means laying down my dream for me. And maybe you could consider that for yourself. Laying down the one that you formulated is best for your life. Laying that down and saying, God, I want your dream. Because see, God's dream cannot be hijacked. My dream can. Others can block it. People can get in the way. Circumstances can sidetrack it. But God's faithfulness to his dream for your life is immovable. And God has called us to be dream releasers this week. Let's release dreams in other people and not, not, not get in the way or not be jealous, not be envious of others, but to see that God has a great dream for each person wherever we go in our community. Let's be those that release those dreams in others. God bless you. Have a great day. If you need prayer, there will be some prayer people up here to pray for you. Come up and get some prayer. God bless you.